0: The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service, nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.
1: The following program contains topics particular to the LGBTQ community. Some discussions may contain mature themes. As such, listener discretion is advised.
2: Remember BPI?
3: Oh, yeah, Blind LGBT Pride International. They're a special interest affiliate of ACB.
2: Yes, they are the ones doing all these cool things at convention. Guess what they're up to now? Do tell their own show. It's called Pride Connection.
3: That's great, but what if I'm not a part of the LGBT community?
2: This is a show for everyone. Actually, non LGBT and non disabled folks are known as allies, and they are a huge portion of BPI's membership. Everyone is welcome. So,
3: what kinds of topics can I expect from Pride Connection?
2: Fun and relevant topics for everyone, from blindness to LGBT education, technology to advocacy.
3: So when will Pride Connection take place?
2: Every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Be sure to tune in so we can all connect and learn while having fun. Pride Connection on On ACB ACB Radio 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 Mainstream.
4: so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side. Rainbows are visions, they're only illusions, and rainbows have nothing to hide. So we've been told and some choose to believe it, but I know that
5: Dreamers and me Come on, Byron. Hustle. Get that button.
3: Okay, I'm looking for it. Hang on. Is this the button? No, this is the button. Okay, here we go.
5: Kim, <laughs> we're going to be late. Did you have to stop and get a hot dog?
6: <laughs> it was the mustard, Anthony. It was the mustard that delayed me.
5: <laughs> Alright, all right. here we go. The, the elevator's here. Let's, let's go.
6: Uh, it smells in here.
3: Oh, Randy.
5: <laughs> All right, the doors are closing. We just, we, we've got to get up there and get the show done. We, we've got a couple of hours to get it done, recorded, edited, and up for ACB Media.
3: Randy, can you hit the number three?
7: Is three the one with the little red light?
3: <laughs> uh, No, no, Randy, not the red one. Don't press the...
5: <laughs> what
6: just happened? I think we're stuck. In my defense, okay. Braille is okay. hard.
5: Okay, we're going to be okay. There, there's always a telephone. Somebody's going to get us out of here. If you reach under there, do you feel the box for the telephone? Underwear. <laughs> I said underwear. Okay, this is not the time for joking, Randy. Do you feel the telephone or not?
7: Help! Oh, the elevator's stuck. Can you get somebody down here?
8: OMG, you people are stuck in the elevator today, out of all days when we're waiting to record. Oh, what are the odds? Okay, no worries. I'll get you out of there soon.
5: All right, at least Gabriel and Lee are up in the studio. They can get everything set up for us, and we can start recording when we get up there. I can't believe this is happening on our anniversary episode.
3: You know, it's really weird, Anthony. Did you ever notice that you start every freaking episode with welcome, welcome, welcome?
5: (laughs) Well, that is not exactly true. Our very first episode of Pride Connection, I actually opened it up with hello, 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 and welcome. But ever since then, yes, it's been welcome, welcome, welcome. And please stop ribbing me on that. I mean, I hear it all the time. (laughs) Well, hello, 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 and welcome to the inaugural podcast, BPI's Pride Connection. We will be here every two weeks for the foreseeable future. Good evening, good evening, good evening. And depending on when you're listening to this, it'll probably be Tuesday evening, and that means it's party with BPI during Pride Connection. Good evening, and welcome back to the BPI party. You are listening to Pride Connection. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And you are listening to Pride Connection's first ever live show on ACB Radio Mainstream. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Wow. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Tuesday night and it is another conversation with Blind LGBT Pride. Oh, my God. I cannot believe on our anniversary show, we are stuck in this elevator. Guys, can you
3: believe it's been two years? Oh, man, that's crazy. I mean, we've been recording for a long time.
5: And I'm so glad that at this point, we have so much more of the BPI voices involved. But back when we first started, it was Gabe, Leah, and I. Oh, my God. When I think about that first show, we were all so nervous. We had no idea how we were going to sound, whether it was going to come off good. I mean, we, we had a little bit of that feeling like Tim will take care of us as far as editing is concerned but we were really nervous but you know from the very beginning we've always had fun i remember that first episode Jess was talking about Ami you know and at that point she was 8 months old and she was so nervous that she flubbed and said that Ami was 8 years old and that that definitely led to a little bit of joking back and forth as i introduce you would you please tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are in the parenting world now, and where you're from? We're going to start with Jessica Kell, a longtime member of BPI. Hey, Jess.
9: Hey, you guys. So I'm Jess. I am from Baltimore, and I'm new to this mama thing. Uh, I should say mommy. My wife is mama. Um, we have an almost eight-year-old. Or, oh, my God. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs>
3: Girl, what did she
8: <laughs> Are you that
10: excited to? Are you that excited for her to just suddenly gain eight years of life?
11: <laughs>
8: Did you fast forward?
9: Edit, edit, edit. Anyway, no. Uh, we have
5: <laughs> soap opera. We have- she went into the bathroom. She was eight months. She came out. She was eight years old and
12: white. dragging. <laughs> that's a new. That's a new plot line.
9: <laughs> she just stopped nursing and looked up at me like, "Why am I eight? Anyway, uh, we have an almost. Eight month old. She will be eight months on Wednesday. Her name is Emily. And yeah, so I am fully blind. My wife is excited.
5: And you know, there was a really poignant moment. Board member Chris Snyder, who, you know, has been a really, really integral force for the Pride Connection, really opened up and, and gave us some vulnerability when he talked about having to have the talk with his kids how important it was that they be more aware of their behavior because they were out in public with a blind parent. And that was our very first show. So from the very beginning, we've really touched on topics that that mean something to our community. I think one of the biggest fears
1: for blind parents in general, if you've ever been on the email lists or on the on the the circuit of message boards or whatever you know we're always being threatened or at least it's hanging over our heads that some sighted Uh. person will get it into their head that oh my god you can't let a blind person parent a child we have to call dcfs for the child's safety regardless of whether or not you know anything is happening they just look at a blind person holding a child and go ah dcfs must be called you know it's (laughs) this very and I, i had it happen to me once all because some nosy sighted person decided that they knew better and they knew blind people shouldn't be raising children. I I always had to tell my children, you know, they, they talk about the talk that people of color have to have with their children regarding police. And I had to have the talk with my children. When you're out in public, you need to be on your best behavior. You cannot act like other children when you are out in public and there's no sighted parent with you. Because if you do, some sighted person can get it into their head that they can call the authorities and have you taken from me because I'm, quote unquote, being not responsible, not able to take care of you. And in my state, in California, you can literally have the authorities called on you for any reason at all, even if it's, you know, they may dismiss it, which they will, of course, if it's, but it's a nightmare. (laughs) You know, we've actually had some big
7: voices on here. I, one of the ones I remember most vividly because I happen to be reading all of his books in a speed reading consumption, T.J. Klune.
5: Yeah, that was a great, great interview. Byron, what did Chris have to do to get that interview?
3: Chris reached out to T.J. Klune through his website, and we weren't sure that it was going to work out because he was in the middle of promoting his new book, Flashfire. Flash Fire which is part of the Extraordinary Series. But uh, TJ was totally on board. And uh, this is what happened.
13: Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with people? I do. Be kind to each other. And something that I think is so, so important that I always try to talk about is mental health. Take care of your mental health. I went through, and I'm still in the process of recovering. A couple of weeks ago, I had a, a bit of a mental break. And it was hard. But I have the tools in place because of of my history with depression and anxiety and having the ADHD on top of that. I had tools in place to know resources, people I could call, my friends, my family, my doctor, therapist. all of these people who are there. So even if your mental health is doing better and you're okay, reach out to those around you because depression robs people of their voices. And it, there may be somebody out there who's too scared to reach out. So check in with your people, make sure that they're okay, and just take care of your health and take your medicine. <laughs> if you are prescribed any kind of SSRI or anything like that to help manage your depression, make sure you take the medicine. That's what it's there for.
5: Yeah, we've had some amazing guests on Pride Connection, but you know what? It hasn't always been fun and games. We've done some really important conversations. And when I think back to some of our social justice conversations, and that clues into something else. Allies, folks that are part of BPI that are either non-visually impaired or non-LGBTQ Tim, actually, your wife has given us quite a few conversations surrounding social justice. Do you remember when her and Will teamed up for that series right after George Floyd?
6: Yes. I think we have a clip here of when her and Will were talking about Black Lives Matter, and you asked some pretty penetrating questions, which kind of got them off uh, and running.
5: Why is there the need for the difference between Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter?
9: Nobody thinks that everybody's life doesn't matter.
5: Amen. Amen. Nobody, Thank you abso-
9: for that. Sherman. Absolutely yeah. no one is saying that. But what we are saying is that there's been such historical information, current treatment, etc., that really suggests that, Black lives do not matter. I think the Black Lives Matter statement, I mean, it's it's showing us a truth that, um, as Will said, because of our siloed lives, we didn't recognize. Our, a lot of people didn't recognize. So if you weren't Black, you didn't know that just by walking down the street, a cop could harass you. And, you know, in New York, they called it stop and frisk. But it, it was harassment and, mm-hmm. and it was humiliation. And you know, if if you weren't black, you didn't know that like, you know, you couldn't walk into absolutely any hotel even today and be treated with respect, that you were under suspicion, or if you went to a store, you were under suspicion, irrespective of, <laughs> you know, how you look, uh, whether you you'd been there before. So it's truly just a call for saying, hey. There are these in- inequities, there are these, uh, you know, longstanding issues, there's this prejudice that's been going on, and we just need to stop. You know, we really need to mm. acknowledge that this stuff has been happening to Black people, and so Black Lives Matter, at least for me. It's it's an attempt to say, I mean, it's an attempt to, like, get you to understand the past, the current sort of situation, mm-hmm. but also just to insist that people are people and they're no different than anybody else in this country and mm-hmm. and we need to do better
14: i think it was the one of the founders of the black lives matter movement and they said we're saying black lives matter too um because I mean, the systemic thing is nothing new. It goes back to before America was a country. It was written into the Constitution that Blacks were three-fifths human, and people still believe that today. They don't look at us as even being humans, um, hence the pictures were how they compare us to monkeys and and things like that. It's such a real feeling out there. And until we can get, we'll we'll never get rid of racism. And I think everybody knows that. But we have to strive to get people to start treating everybody as though we're all human. And until that happens, we're going to be stuck stuck in the same rut. And uh, again, I think the murder of George Floyd was, is horrible, but it shined a light on what's been going on. And I think you know, they say darkness can't uh, overcome light. And as long as we're putting light on this stuff, we have a chance to make it better.
3: You know, Sage Chung hosted their own show about stopping AAPI hate, and they had a whole panel of people on the show. And uh, Anthony, you and I were both there.
5: Yeah, that was actually a two-episode conversation, um, now that I'm thinking back on it. And at that point, we really were looking at some horrific incidences that were happening across the country. And I remember Sage really wanted Pride Connection to speak on it. And they really shined in, in those conversations. And we got a lot of feedback on those two conversations for people that were just waiting for someone in our organization to speak up and add our voices to what was happening in our country.
15: And it's astounding to me that people are like, after Atlanta, they're like, are you okay? And I'm like, I don't know, (laughs) you know, I've never felt this kind of grief before. And you know, knowing that that six of the the victims were, you know, Asian women. Asian women, it's just like yeah. it completely derails me. Because uh, I, when I first found out about this, I was just trying to escape the the heaviness of this whole thing because it could have happened anywhere. Violence can happen anywhere. When it became real was when I when I was scrolling through socials, and if anyone else uses TikTok, someone had posted the nine one one calls and it blatantly just completely made me lose anything that was happy, right? Like, I was like, well, I can't shield this anymore from entering yes. my thought space, because that could have been my mom. The woman that was on the phone, I don't know who it was, one of the spa owners or something, she had an accent, and I heard her as her, right? But I also heard her as my mom, um, and it's like, wow, this is this is truly scary. It is scary to know that I don't know like I've I've had instances of stalking before and I'm like oh this makes me so nervous so I'm so used to looking behind my back but now it feels elevated to an extreme level because of my racial identity.
3: Wow that was really a, a hard hitting clip and you know that just goes to show you that the more voices the better and if there's an idea for a show that you have, if there is a topic that really means a lot to you, then hosting an episode of Pred Connection is definitely something you should consider doing.
5: And I really want to say at this moment, you know, we've done a really good job at highlighting all the different colors of our rainbow, all the different voices of our chorus. And this is just the beginning. It's two years and we're celebrating it, but, you know, we've got a lot more stories to tell along the way. So please keep listening. Kevin and Michael Slade produced a series called After Forever, and they came on to Pride Connection right after they won their first slew of Emmys. That first year, they won four Emmys for the production of After Forever. And Michael, unfortunately, lost his battle with cancer before they were able to film a special retrospective for After Forever and, of course, Season 3, which they're filming now. And Kevin had such beautiful things to say about their partnership. They were best friends, they were creative partners, they were soulmates, but they were not romantically involved. But the way someone can touch your life and leave such a lasting mark, I'll never forget the beautiful words that Kevin had to say about, about Michael. If you can, it was a labor of love for many reasons, but one of them being it was partially cathartic telling Michael's own story and mm-hmm. the full circle of you being able to now take on Michael's spirit and tell it for him mm-hmm. and and do it in in a labor of love is absolutely beautiful. And we wanted part connection wanted to to celebrate that and, and to have a space where we could talk about that a little bit.
0: Michael was very clear when we sat down and started to write the series that he was ready to work on this from a um, an artistic place. You know, he was ready to work through some of this, you know, loss from a place of, of love and um, healing. And, you know, from the moment he broke the news to me and Allison, it was like, OK, here's a little art imitating life situation. I've been diagnosed with this rare cancer. Ha ha. You know, then when it came to writing this project, which basically um, did Allison, it's three questions that Riley asks everybody to answer, the whole gang. And it's what they like most about Jason, what they like least about Jason, and what his favorite, what their favorite memory was about Jason. And Michael had a lot of stories. I had a few stories that, you know, we tried to throw them into the pot. But when Michael started to weave these stories together in the weirdest way, this is even before he had announced to us that he was going to now stop treatment and going to hospice. It was, it was really kind of, um, it became hard to watch on a certain level because it was almost like a tribute to Michael and all mm-hmm. of the work that he had woven together from his experience and then things that I'd taken, then he had created. It feels very, very Twilight Zone, like surreal. And I don't, Alice and I, Alice and I are so busy with so many other things right now that we haven't really decompressed ourselves about it, but it's, it's very,
12: It was, you know, we had a, we had a private screening with our cast and our producers. And, you know, I think it's like, that's when it really, I think hit me on
0: Zoom. We had to do it. Yeah,
12: exactly. On Zoom. It just, I think hit, hit me at least then, like how kind of strange the whole situation was about, you know, like this special about you know is about it's kind of a memorial in its own weird way to somebody that we were literally had just lost 3 days prior you know it was just, it's it's kind of a surreal experience being a part of mm-hmm. you know seeing it come together and then celebrating it and him at the same time
5: god when you think about it we have really had so many different voices from the BPI family on Pride Connection Randy, I remember how nervous you were to do that first episode on asexuality and, and you really rose to the occasion. I have to ask you, when it was done, when it was recorded and you knew that, you know, that next Tuesday was going out to the world, how much nerves did you have inside yourself? Uh, basically, there were two different feelings. One was, great,
7: it's done, it's out. Like, I finally did it. And the other thing was, oh, did I say this right? Did I say that right? Uh, What if I said these things wrong? And I had basically two days to sit there and wonder about it. And then like, I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And then I'd find things to distract myself. It actually took me like three weeks to go back and actually listen to myself. Um, And it wasn't long after that, uh, that I became a lifetime member of BPI.
5: Today, what do you need the world to know and experience and feel based upon your journey?
7: So here's, it- here's the thing I want the world to know, particularly people who work with people who are growing, which I guess is everybody, but I'm, I'm picturing children while I say it. If you are going to expect the people who live in your society to have sexual experiences, if that is an important part of growing up, make sure that they know it and don't tell them simultaneously, you know, that it's bad and good, you know, at the same time, or, you know, at least be able to set the context for when,
5: Mm. when it's
7: okay and not okay. There are more than one sexual orientation and there are certainly more than two sexual orientations. You know, is is the big thing, and the third thing is if you haven't had sex yet, or if you're not having sex yet, or if you aren't even sure that you don't want to, you're still growing up. You're still, you know, you're still a person, you're still an adult, and you know, those are the three things.
5: Laurel came to us because of some of the programming we were putting out on the ACB community, and we had done some programming about pronoun usage, and we had gathered different persons of different pronoun representations. And Laurel connected with us. He was working with Senator Feinstein at the time, and he wanted to see how his activism could match with the activism we were doing. And I had no idea what a fascinating story Laurel had he's lived multiple places around the world, came to this country with a couple of dollars in his pocket and about seven words worth of English, and worked his way up into the House of Representatives and Then the Senate of the United States, he became a life member and became one of our voices, one of our strongest advocates that's That's one episode that was will always stay close to my heart
10: I think it's difficult it's very hard to. Be homeless but I'm adding being um, visually impaired to
11: that right Um, I think I was probably the fanciest homeless man on the street you could ever (laughs) see or I I asked someone uh, I used the word library and it was right there where the park was because that's it's UCLA park and so there's a public library there Uh, so that public library and there was a Starbucks 24-7 and there was a, a gym where I stored my stuff, took showers and the library mm. became essentially my place from the moment it opens to the moment it closes. And, you know, I don't leave until they kick me out. And I came across an older woman in that library and I tried to communicate with her using Google Translate that I'm trying to learn English and I want to read. She started to give me Dr. Seuss books. A Mm -hmm. year to that, I realized, not a good idea. Never give an English learner, Dr. Seuss. (laughs) (laughs) Because some of these words, I couldn't even find it on Google (laughs) Translate. Right.
8: (laughs) Yes. yes. (laughs) Because I know this is very important for Middle Eastern families. Even though you had left against their will, I'm sure they were still concerned and worried and genuinely interested in knowing your whereabouts, were you able to communicate with them and at least let them know that you had made it to America safely and that you were finding your way around?
11: Yes, absolutely. And uh, you're absolutely right on that front. Uh, My mom definitely was very worried and wanted to know how I was, if I needed anything. And so it was my decision that I made. I told myself from The moment I got my visa, that no matter how bad it is or how bad it gets, I'm going to make it. So I communicated with my mom, and I told her that I was doing great. Mm -hmm. I didn't want her to worry or to overthink. Uh, My mom didn't know that I was homeless until Mm. uh, my probably third year in the U.S. or fourth year in the U.S.
10: How did you ultimately... Transition from being homeless to somewhere else. I mean, I I believe I read that you said you were in a homeless shelter for some degree of time.
11: Right. I was moving between homeless shelters. So after four months, I was able to pick up the language. I started to connect with services, and that's when I was uh, living at Different homeless shelters. Um, I was also, uh, with the help of a social worker in Los Angeles, she helped me to enroll in high school since I wanted to. It was something that was important to me and I wanted to finish it. Uh, And so I was living Mm -hmm. in shelters, going to high school. And after a year and eight months in Los Angeles, um, things with homelessness persisted. And I thought maybe a change of place will bring new opportunities. And I decided to fly to New York, not because Mm -hmm. I knew much about New York, but because I heard a lot about New York. I once again got on the plane and landed in JFK and in a state, uh, once again, not knowing a soul or even where to begin. So I also went to a homeless shelter. An employee of the Department of Education helped me to enroll at Harvey Milk High School, which was a traditional public high school in New York. But Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, I didn't want to be in a traditional public high school. I wanted to develop my professional skills to get myself out of homelessness. And so I started to look for jobs. I came across a woman on the train who offered me an internship in this international language school, that internship turned into a job. And uh, I worked there for a little over two years, Uh, I prioritized education over housing. And so since Mm. I wanted to finish high school, I decided to look for an online high school, which there was only a private online high school. And so instead of using my salary to rent an apartment, I decided to spend it to cover tuition for that high school for my senior year. And I graduated in September of 2016, while i was still working at this international language school and then i enrolled at Brooklyn college which is a privately owned school in new york city uh majoring in business management and administration two weeks after i graduated from high school is when i started college and so i stayed there for a semester and you know, New York was a little bit too overwhelming for me. After two years, I felt maybe it's time for a, a new adventure. And so I wanted to go back to California, but I didn't want to go back to Los Angeles too hot. I went to San Francisco.
6: So Anthony, you know, in all this discussion, uh, the one person you, you haven't talked a lot about is our Presidente, Gabriel.
5: El Presidente Gabriel Lopez Capati. You know, he gives us a president's message at the top of every Pride connection, and it's always something poignant. It usually has something to do with the topic that we're talking about. But Lord have mercy if he tells us one more time about his journey from Honduras to becoming a United States citizen, I think I'm going to stick my head in a big old bucket of (laughs) sand.
6: Love you, Gabriel. (laughs)
8: Well, excuse me. (laughs) You people think I cannot hear you? I'm listening to what you're saying. Probably I should just leave you stuck right there in the elevator and Leah and I can take care of this show by ourselves. And what are you saying? That I'm like, what, the Rosen Island of the group? Always talking about back in St. Olaf. I don't talk about it that much. Well, maybe I do. A little bit. But it's important to me, so I mention it sometimes.
6: So, Anthony, when we started Pride Connection, of course, one of the people who was on every week was Leah. And I remember there was a bit of contention. Uh, Uh Uh-oh. I know uh, where you're going with this. A little bit of contention uh, between Leah and some of the other presenters over the word uh, beautiful. You had to go
5: there, Tim. Well, Leah is probably going to spank the both of us, but yes... We had um, multiple conversations, but it started in a show that we did with Leon Akert-Whiting, who is a lifetime member now. But um, it was Butch versus Beautiful. And Leah did not want to be associated with Beautiful, even though many of us believe that Butch is just as beautiful as Beauty is Beautiful. Tim, do you remember how much of <laughs> how much of a rag she gave us to edit that out of the episode and finally she caved in and said, All right, it's funny, we're gonna leave it there.
6: Yeah, she didn't, she didn't, she didn't want it in the episode. And I, I think I was the one who defended it and said, No, no, we have to keep this in.
5: Yeah. And it became a running joke for at least, you know, the next six months worth of pride connections. I think Butch and Beautiful was worked into every episode that we did for exactly. six months after that. <laughs> exactly. Well, welcome to Pride Connection, Blind Pride International's weekly radio show on ACB Radio Mainstream. I am one of your three co hosts, Anthony Corona. Joining me, as always, is Gabriel Lopez Cafati, our wonderful president. Hey, everyone, welcome back. And of course, we have Leah Gardner, our beautiful vice president.
10: Hey, Anthony. Hey, Gabe.
8: I'm Coming not beautiful.
10: Up. Just FYI. I'm Butch, not beautiful.
8: Oh <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> well, Leah, let me let me let me <laughs> let me merge those 2 You're beautifully butch. Ooh.
10: I don't I let's not no no beautiful. I'm butch.
8: Okay, okay, okay.
10: <laughs> beautiful well. high heels and dresses and skirts. No thank you.
3: You know, Pride Connection has a lot of really fun and funny moments. And we really have a good time on the show, but we also cover some really serious topics. And Matthew Shepard is a topic that comes up a lot in the LGBTQ community. uh, And we did a show about that on the anniversary of his murder. Tim, you were the one that edited that show. What kind of feelings did working on that show bring to you?
6: That was a very difficult editing piece, because I I remembered when that initially had happened, and it just brought back a lot of memories and it had ripples through the whole LGBT community and uh, so yeah it was was a very
16: intense show Matthew Shepard was a young 21 year old college student in Wyoming and he decided he was going to go out one night to a gay bar because he was gay And he was, how do I say this, accosted by two horrible people coming out of that bar. And they were, one of them was just going to rob him. But then they forced him into their vehicle and they basically brutally, horribly beat him because he was gay. And they took him out into the country and they tied him to a fence post where he, where they left him. And he died six days later from his brain injuries, but they horribly beat him. And just because he was gay. And his parents, uh, Dennis and Judy Shepard, have set up the Matthew Shepard Foundations. I think it started in December 1st, 1998 in Wyoming. And it's a nonprofit for education and diversity and teaching people that hate is not going to work. And this was horrible and
17: I didn't know anything about Matthew Shepard until after I came out and I first heard about Matthew Shepard 11 years ago as far as as the details of what happened and it was at a workshop, it was actually at a coming out workshop. And so it's a very sad story, and and for for a bunch of people that were basically there to support each other, it was I I remember all the deep of the morning, like we all had a good cry over the over it, and uh, and it was just it was it was very moving and poignant at the time because uh, we were talking about our own struggles with coming out and some of the uh, opposition that we face in our own communities as well too. So my perspective, I, like, I didn't know as much about Matthew Shepard in the in the, the years that it happened, but learned a lot more about, about him since and, uh, how the Met foundation has been working to sort of educate people about, uh, hate crimes and, and some of the really brutal things that happened to people in the LGBTQS community. And, uh, it rocked the community across
5: the country, you know, bars held vigils and, you know, rallies and, and cries for hate crimes didn't exist. And, and at that point in the, in the early aftermath of Matthew Shepard, it really looked like there wasn't going to be justice served in that case. It really shaped my generation firmly.
10: I'm in the same age category as you, Anthony, and I remember I was living in Burlington, Vermont at the time that it happened, which is a very supportive, open college community. And I know everyone that I talked to at the time was just horrified that something this vicious, this violent had happened. And his, you know, Matthew Shepard's mother really, really kept that case open in so many ways and pushed for, for justice for her son. I'm not sure, you know, if it hadn't been for her, if uh, these two individuals responsible would have faced the repercussions that they did.
16: She didn't stop. Her and her husband did not stop because mm-hmm. this was so brutal. Like you said, it rocked the whole, I think, gay community at the time. But she stood up and she was very brave and she was, and she has not stopped until the Matthew, Matthew Shepard uh, law was passed by Barack Obama. She, their foundation is still in existence. I think it's in Laramie, Wyoming. The strength of those parents that they had. And Tom, correct
5: me if I'm wrong, the the law went into effect in 2010,
16: correct? I think it was, 2010. But yeah, it had to wait, you know, that long. And Barack Obama signed it into law.
7: You know, Byron, one of the things that we do is we always try to highlight the new voices of BPI. And I remember uh, this one time we had this close friend of yours, Sage.
3: Yeah, Sage came on and talked about their experience competing in the Paralympics and, you know, just all kinds of stuff. And I think what their show was one of the first times that we reached out to the BPI membership at large and got one of their voices on the show. And we've continued to do that. So, yeah.
10: Can you talk about that injury and the aftermath of that and the process of coming back?
18: It was 2015, August 2015. I just came back from Pan Ams. I had placed second and I was in my prime But I came back with my place and I also came back with a mild concussion. (laughs) But I was in my prime, right? Like I was feeling good. My judo was getting better. And I was at a seminar the next month and I landed incorrectly and basically shattered my right arm, my humerus. And it was not humorous at the time. Far from humorous. Probably the most excruciating (laughs) thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. My very first ambulance ride to the ER, it was god awful. It was awful. But That was when it truly hit me. Like everything that I had worked for was gone in that singular moment. But I think that in that time of healing from that was the time that I learned the most about myself. So uh, the injury, it was basically a butterfly spiral fracture or something really gnarly sounding. And uh, my arm was in three pieces. So... I couldn't shower by myself. I couldn't eat. I'm right arm, arm dominant. I couldn't work my guide dog. There was so many things that I couldn't do. And that's when it hit me full blast in the face that I was like, this is what disability is. This is why I'm disabled right now. I mean, it was, it was awful. Like I said, I learned so much and I'm, I'm glad I came out of it alive.
10: Was there a point during that time of healing that you feared you might not be able to come back?
18: Oh, absolutely. I think that athletes, and who knows, I can put a a myriad of other people into this category, but athletes, we throw so much of ourselves in terms of time and learning and travel. And it took me four hours round trip a day to go to practice. And I would go to practice somewhere between three to five times a week. And that's a lot of time to put in, to travel just for a two hour practice. And once grad school started, that was a whole other thing to put on top of it, right? Like there's all these aspects of it that I could talk about. But being an athlete at that time in 2015, that was my entire identity. That was something that I had worked for for two and a half, three years, just to make sure that I can have a chance at going to the games. And I lost it in a single moment. It was devastating. It was so devastating. So for the longest time, I want to say, gosh, Christmas, all the holidays were really, really rough. I wasn't sure if my arm was going to make it. I had struggles with Medicaid because they wouldn't pay for treatment. So I was like, I'm blind. My arm is broken. Life is over. (laughs) Life is over because we catastrophize everything when we're in that really, really crappy headspace. Oh sure. So, everything is awful. Everything was awful. Like it was just this monstrous thing that I was like I'm never going to make it out of here. I'm never I can't claw myself out with one arm, you know. I'm not trying to be ableist by saying that. <laughs> it's it's just I didn't know how to function. I didn't know how to have my own thoughts. I didn't know how to feel good again. There was all of these things that were so impossibly
10: hard. Was there a point during that process that you felt that you're worth as an athlete, was so integral to your importance as a person, your uh, vitality, that you worried you weren't going to make it through if you couldn't qualify for the Paralympics.
18: Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like because I was in my prime at that time, I was like, I could only improve from here. And there was no expectation of an injury whatsoever because I was like, I'm being careful. It's not going to happen to me because I'm being careful it was something that I was starting to get good at at that time. I was in my prime and I was excited about it because for the longest time, I I still struggle with this. I sell myself short. I'm like, I don't know what I'm good at. And since I was grasping judo overall, I was excited about getting better. So when I got injured, it was like a complete 180 and I felt entirely Mm -hmm. worthless. How did that affect your, your mental health overall? It wasn't great. So I struggle with certain mental health issues and, it definitely escalated really bad swings for me to the point where if I was another person, I wouldn't want to be around me. It was kind of like I constantly had this gray cloud over me about everything. I was like, I already can't see. So why would anyone want to hang out with me? You know, I'm like my arm doesn't work. So I can't really do the things that I want to do anymore. Why would anyone want to hang out? One thing would pile on top of another and it would escalate to something that's, it's like a cacophony of, of really loud things in your head that you can't mm-hmm. get away from.
10: I always think that mental health, especially when things are extremely difficult and you're, you're in a really deteriorating place, I wonder if it's kind of like a really loud blaring television in the back of your head and you just can't get rid of that sound. It just doesn't go away. All, all the sort of ideas about being worthless and not fit for living almost. Is, was it like that in any way?
18: For me, it was kind of like a fire truck at the beginning of a parade. You know, mm-hmm. it's so loud that it's there, but you could see all the happiness surrounding it. but all you could hear is the fire truck. Uh, you blaring can hear its the horn. wailing of the yep. sirens. <laughs> the wailing of the sirens. And you're just like, <laughs> I understand what this is for, but it's so loud that I can't really think about anything else. Just the other day, there was a fire truck here and it was so loud, I couldn't think straight. And my thoughts were similar to that, where it was just blaringly in my face, loud how did you find your
10: way up from that place?
18: So I was fortunate enough to have been working with a nutritionist who put me in touch with a sports psychologist. And in a way, this is all the silver lining because that's what I went to school for (laughs) in the long run. But she put me in touch with a sports psychologist, the one who works at the Olympic Training Center, I guess the Olympic Paralympic Training Center. But if it wasn't for her, we put in a lot of work to make sure that I was safe. We made sure that I had safety plans. She made sure to give me like things to do and to make sure that I had coping mechanisms. She checked in on me and I had my friends checking in on my too. And the other important thing that I had that was vital uh was, was my guide dog. She saved me. Not just in the sense of she's a guide dog, but she saved me because she was another being that was there for me. Um, someone that depended on me and I couldn't have been okay without her. She needed, she needed you
10: to be there for her.
18: Yes.
6: So Anthony, anybody who listens to Pride Connection knows that you are a pretty political animal. And uh, <laughs> I, I remember one of the shows, and you were, you were over the moon with this one, when we had the person on who was the representative, was it from was it West Virginia? Yeah, West Virginia. You were so excited.
5: You know, our community, you know, we all know what the L, the G, and the B, and most of us know what the T is, but unfortunately in our community, we don't pay as much attention to the T in our community as we should. And the first ever trans representative from the state of West Virginia came on to pride connection to talk about her experiences, Rosemary Ketchum. She was extremely engaging, intelligent, funny, witty. She had a line for everything. And it wasn't a prepackaged line. Like you get from politicians. It was just her life view and what brought her. And she's young. She's young. She's part of that, you know, that next gen generation. Uh, you know, I I actually kind of felt a little old, and and we're about five and a half six years apart. But I felt kind of old because you know she was talking Instagram and TikTok, and and how she built this campaign and became the first trans representative. It was amazing. That was an amazing show.
4: It was my therapist when I was uh, about twelve years old that that gave us the the term transgender. And I think for my parents, it was kind of a light bulb because the word gay just never felt right. I mean, we knew gay people and they, they didn't, you know, they didn't want to be women. Like that wasn't the, you know, that that's not how, you know, a, a gay person is. And so it, it never fit for me. And it didn't make sense for my parents until we, you know, had the language in our toolbox to, you know, really express what this meant. It didn't make it any easier, I think. In in some ways, I think my parents were, even more frightened and more, you know, concerned, because we knew what a world looked like with gay people in the, you know, early, mid-2000s, we didn't really have a world of trans representation, especially positive trans representation. I mean, in so many, you know, media portrayals, if there is a trans person, you know, they are a sex worker, or they are addicted to drugs, or they are, you know, runs the gambit. And, that, I think, really terrified my parents.
8: Could you share a little bit of how much it determined the path that you and your parents followed once you were able to get acquainted with the appropriate language to match your situation?
4: You are absolutely right. I'm, I'm glad you, you picked up on that. You know, language is a tool. Language is a resource. And literally, if a person cannot describe or express themselves in, in the appropriate language, Uh, you cannot be liberated in your experience or in your culture or in your community. It's very, very difficult. And so if, if I weren't given, you know, the, the language to really express myself, I don't know what I would have done or who I would have, you know, turned out to be. And, you know, some, some language is liberating some, you know, requires a lot more work, but Mm -hmm. I think it's incredibly relevant right now because, you know, there are so many folks, especially, you know, white cisgender folks who have never used words like racial justice before. They've never had to think about it. They've never really had to consider it. You know, even the word privilege is something that for so many folks is kind of uh, alien and and they're like, I don't understand Mm -hmm. it. And I think learning a new language like anything is uncomfortable and you're not gonna get it right every time. And you're gonna say the wrong things, sometimes Mm -hmm. literally or figuratively. Um, and, uh, and I think that's what we're experiencing right now, a serious kind of growing pain. I, but I do think, I think you're right. I think it
6: starts with language. So Anthony, one of the things that we talk about from time to time on prod connection is the importance of allies for BPI and past Allies, present allies, and future allies. And I remember one of the first shows that we did, and I never met this person, and you never met him either. But one of the first shows we did was we talked about Al Ellis, who was a huge ally at a BPI for years and years. Him and his wife, for years and years and years. And she yeah. actually was she actually was on the show, and I remember he had passed away, and it was just it was such a moving tribute to him, the whole show.
5: I've really gotten to know Donna over the last couple of years, and she is just such an amazing light. She has done so much for our community. She's done so much for BPI and Pride Connection. Like you said, we, we never got the, the honor of meeting Al, but he's been involved with BPI for many years, especially as far as conventions were concerned. And the one thing that stands out to me from that episode was the joy when donna spoke about what giving to bpi meant to her now but more importantly what her and Al got as allies to our community and how it, i i'll never forget her words that they could never repay us and i remember thinking to myself but bpi probably wouldn't still be in existence if it wasn't for you and Al." so as you're saying this i'm thinking to myself my god what you've given us is is priceless so it's such a beautiful two-way street. And as we, as we think about our allies for BPI, we think about the love and the solidarity and just standing. Our president always says, it doesn't matter where you come from. It just matters that you come to us with an open heart an open mind and an open spirit. And if there's any two people who have ever embodied that more, I couldn't possibly imagine. Alan Donna Ellis R., the grandparents of all of our BPI members and we love and cherish them so much.
12: I'm so sad. I mean, I was 18 years old when I married Al and though I'm grief stricken that I've lost him, uh, it's hard to be grief stricken for too long because I feel so grateful that I had almost 58 years of a good loving man. And how many people can say that they have had a partner, a good, loving person in their lives for 58 years who loved them unconditionally. It's hard for me to feel totally grief-stricken because I feel grateful And happy that I had that kind of a relationship. And so, really, most of my days are spent feeling grateful rather than sad. I've had a lot of tears, but I'm more grateful than I am sad. He was a good man, and not too many people can say that. So that's the way I feel. And uh, BPI was so good for us. You know, you're grateful to him, but he was also grateful to you. And I'm grateful to you, too. <laughs> we, we gave, but we got, too. We got something from you that you will never know how much you gave to us, too.
6: So, Byron, I have to ask you about this because I didn't edit this show. You did. But this was a really special show for you. Let's say you were up in the air. I guess we'll say that. (laughs) Yeah, I was. So
3: uh, Sage, Leah and myself all went skydiving last year and we were at the height of COVID. We were all stir crazy. We wanted to get out of the house and do something. And so we decided to get together in Illinois and we all went skydiving and you know we we had such a good time facing that fear of jumping out of the airplane equates to the fear of coming out of the closet and admitting that you're gay, lesbian, uh, trans, queer, non-binary, asexual, whatever it is that you are and you're facing that fear of letting the world know it. It's kind of like taking a leap of faith out of an airplane and hoping that you will get to the ground safe and sound. And so uh, this is Sage and Leah and myself jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. All right, good luck, group one. You ready for this? All right, group one is about to disembark. There goes Leah. Bye, Leah. Bye, G, Bye, David. All right,
10: welcome to Chicagoland Skydiving Center. I'm Jenny, here today with Leah. Leah, what in the world are you getting ready to do? Jenny, I'm about to jump out of a plane. Oh my goodness. (laughs) How are you feeling about that right now, girl? It's crazy. I just took two flights yesterday just so I could come here to jump out of one. Yeah, you know what? On the way home, you're going to be like...
17: Hey, I like I to know. do that again.
10: Hey, pilot. Uh, I jumped out of a plane before. Can you want to try yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> all right, sweetie. So here in just a second, right. we're going to get in our plane. We'll go up to 14,000 feet. Okay. We'll jump out. We'll be in free fall for about a minute. We'll be doing about 120 miles an hour straight back down to the ground. All right. How's it sound? That sounds... It sounds gnarly when you say it, it like does. that, all right? All right. Well, what would you like to say to anyone who's watching at home right now? Everybody... This is the first time I've ever done anything like this, and in life, every once in a while, you just gotta take a risk. I love it, girl. All right, let's go have an awesome skydive. All right. (laughs) That was amazing, Jenny. We skydiving. Jenny, that was amazing. All right. Whoa. I can't believe I just jumped out of that plane. I can't believe it either. Jenny, you rock. Dude, you rock. What was your favorite part? I, I love the free falling part. Yeah. But that part, you know, also where you where it get that sort of whiplash feeling yep. under you. Yep. And then you just feel the air. Yeah. And you're just
15: like drifting
10: through it. We and did that sort me. of we did that sort of like maneuver too. Yeah. In there where we were like, you know, zipping around yeah that was awesome it's amazing isn't it oh my god would it you ever cool. want to do it again yeah absolutely yeah yeah absolutely awesome, all right give me five <laughs> right there there we go all right all right girl thank you so much for scouting with us today oh, at thank you oh my god Hello BPI crew, you're making a lot of racket down there. You'd think you were stuck in an elevator or something, (laughs) but it's kind of like the past two years, isn't it? We've all been stuck in quarantine, in lockdown. It's kind of like in some ways real life has been on hiatus. Well. I think it's time to set you all free, literally and figuratively. So hold on just a minute. I'm going to come down there, and uh, I am going to release you all. I think you're going to have to—I'm going to have to hoist all of you up because this elevator is a really mean mistress and is just completely unyielding today. Now, this is my first attempt at elevator maintenance, so let's hope this all goes well. One of you at a time, reach up, and I'm gonna grab your hands, and I'm gonna pull you up, and we're gonna go out into the next year of BPI Pride Connection together.
5: Oh my God, it's our Butch beautiful (laughs) co-host. Tell me you've got a tool belt on because I, I don't think I can climb out of here without a little assistance. <laughs> Hoist me up.
6: All right, here we
3: go. Hey, Tim, we can get another hot dog.
5: Oh, yeah. Randy, are you scared? Leah won't drop you. She's butch and beautiful.
7: Oh, okay.
5: Someday we'll find it.
8: The Rainbow Connection. The lovers, the dreamers,
4: and me.
3: Pride Connection was
5: recorded in front of a
14: live audience.
5: Thank you for listening to the show. We'd like to invite you to send any comments, questions, or just join our conversation. Email us at membership at blindlgbtpride.org. That's membership at blindlgbtpride.org. And join our conversation.